Please turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 22. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. We have been studying the Gospel of Luke consecutively for over two years. We found ourselves now in the final three chapters of this great Gospel of Jesus Christ that I love so much. And this morning, it's our joy to look at the first six verses of Luke 22. Let's read them together. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. We have come to the last few days of the earthly life of Jesus Christ. This is probably Wednesday. The events in these verses are probably the Wednesday before the Friday in which Jesus will die. And Jesus, for some time now, has steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, knowing what will await him when he gets there. He has told his disciples over and over and over that he's going up to Jerusalem, where he is going to be crucified, and then he will rise again from the dead three days later. However, his disciples couldn't understand him. It was very clear, but they couldn't understand him because they had no categories for a suffering and dying Messiah. Everyone in that day understood that the Messiah would come and break the Roman yoke and free the Jewish people to be the most mighty nation on the face of the earth, and the Messiah would rule militarily with swords and steeds, and that he would possess a throne there in Jerusalem. And so all the things that Jesus was saying about his suffering and death to come went right by them. They just couldn't get it. They had a completely wrong view of the Messiah. Now, this morning, as we work our way through these six verses, I want to show you four major players in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In the drama of redemption, what were the major players? Who is responsible for the death of Christ? Well, we're going to look at four of them this morning. The first one is the religious leaders of that day. Verse 1 says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. Who killed Jesus Christ? Someone might say, well, it was the religious leaders that did it. It says right there in verse 2, they were seeking how they might put him to death. Here we're told that the chief priests and the scribes were the ones that were doing it. But if we were to read Matthew 26, 3, we would also see that the elders were in on this. And if we read other passages, we would find out that the Pharisees were in on it. In fact, all of the various Jewish sects were represented. They all collaborated together to put Jesus to death. Now, we're told here about the elders who were the representatives on the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the 70-member Jewish ruling body there in Jerusalem 
that settled all kinds of affairs concerning the nation of Israel. In addition to that, the scribes, um, the scribes were the doctors of the law. They were the ones that studied God's law so that they could interpret it and then apply it to all facets of people's lives in the first century. The Pharisees, they were the religious conservatives. They believed the Bible. They had zeal for the law of God. So you have all of these various types of Jewish persons coming together. And ordinarily, they wouldn't come together, but they're all coming together because they all want Jesus dead. They hate him, and they have determined that he must die. These are the enemies of Christ. Now, we have been noticing these enemies for a long, long time. Back in Luke chapter 6, verse 11, even back at that point, 16 chapters earlier, we saw how they were conspiring to put Jesus to death. Jesus had made the mistake of actually healing a man on the Sabbath, a man with a withered hand. And at the end of that little section of scripture, it says in uh, Luke six eleven, but they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. So for, for a lengthy period of time, these enemies of Christ, the religious leaders, have understood that they've got to do something to get rid of Jesus. Jesus has been exposing their hypocrisy and their pride and their self-righteousness, not just privately, but publicly. In fact, there is an entire chapter devoted to this, Matthew chapter 23, in which Jesus repeatedly calls these Pharisees and scribes hypocrites. He even calls them snakes and serpents and sons of hell. And the multitudes now are leaving these religious leaders and they're following Jesus. And the religious leaders are feeling that they've got to do whatever it takes to retain the people under their own authority. Remember, Jesus said that these Pharisees did everything to be honored by men. Well, they're leaving these Pharisees and they're going to Jesus in huge numbers. Jesus has this colossal following. Thousands upon thousands of people are following him and witnessing the miracles and the healings that he's doing. They're leaving the religious leaders behind. They're going to Jesus and the religious leaders don't like this one bit. In fact, Matthew 27, 18 says that it was because of envy that he was delivered up. They were envious of the popularity of Jesus and the influence of Jesus, and they want it back. In fact, if you turn over to John chapter 11, we're going to notice a little situation there that comes on the heels of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Notice this, John 11, verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. 
Now, what's going on here? The Pharisees and the chief priests are convening this council because they recognize that if they let Jesus go on doing what he's doing, they're in big trouble. Jesus is performing miracles, even raising people from the dead, and the multitudes that are following him are only growing bigger and bigger. And they realize that if things go on like this, the Romans are going to clamp down not only on the religious leaders, but there could even be a bloodbath as they seek to restore order. See, the Romans were concerned about peace within the vassal nations that they ruled. And since Jesus was attracting so many thousands of people to himself, the Romans may get a bit nervous about that. They may feel like he's fomenting unrest amongst this vassal nation, and they may come in and violently take order again and strip the religious leaders of their authority and take it upon themselves to rule the nation. And so these religious leaders are saying, we can't allow that. We can't allow that. And then Caiaphas who was high priest that year, says, you know, you guys don't know anything at all. You're not taking into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. So the high priest's assessment is that Jesus must be put to death. He must be, because if he isn't put to death, the Romans are going to do something to us, they're going to strip us of our authority amongst the people, and we could have major problems with them coming in and using violence to restore order here in Israel. Now, these religious leaders hate Jesus. They want him dead, but they've got a big, big problem. And that problem is they can't arrest him openly. In fact, in Luke 19, Verse 47, it says that Jesus was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him, and they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. The people loved Christ. They were hanging on every word when he was teaching. And the religious leaders knew that if they just came in broad daylight in the midst of all the people in a public setting and arrested Jesus and hauled him off, there could be major problems in Israel. In fact, um, Matthew 26 verses 3 through 5 tell us that the religious leaders were afraid there would be a riot that would break out. Matthew 26 verse 3 says, Then the chief priests And the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. In fact, in Luke chapter 20, the religious leaders came to Jesus and they said, hey, by what authority are you doing these things? You're cleansing the temple, you're driving out all the money changers and those selling doves and and animals. By what authority are you doing this? Who gives you the right? This is our domain. And Jesus answered and he said, okay, I'll answer your question by asking you a question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And they realized if they said, well, his baptism was from heaven, that Jesus will simply say, well, then why didn't you do it? Why didn't you get baptized by him? But if they say his baptism was only from men, They're going to stone 
the religious leaders. The, the crowds will stone the religious leaders because all of them believe that John was a prophet from God. So they were afraid of being stoned. They were afraid of this riot developing. They were afraid that if they had Jesus arrested by force, that their very lives could be at stake. And so they couldn't do it openly. They had to do it secretly. And the problem was that when the sun went down, Jesus and his disciples just literally disappeared. They were going to the Mount of Olives to spend the night there. Now, this was one of the three major festivals of the year in which all Jewish males 30 years and older were required to attend. And so you had multitudes and multitudes of Jewish pilgrims coming, streaming into Jerusalem. And no doubt, any inns that were in Jerusalem would be quickly filled up. There would be no place left for people to stay the night. And so you would have people camping on the Mount of Olives, just like Jesus and his disciples were doing. You would have probably thousands camping in that region. It would be sort of like a, a religious woodstock where you've got the hills covered with tents everywhere. <laughs> and so the religious leaders know, hey, when the sun goes down and, and the crowds have dispersed, we can't find him. Jesus just disappears and trying to find him amongst all those thousands of other people that have come here to Jerusalem to observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's just impossible. It's like finding a needle in a haystack. So what we really need is a mole. We need an informer. We need an insider. We need somebody who's close to Jesus who can tell us where he goes and where we can catch up with him so that we can arrest him secretly and not in a public open setting. So who killed Jesus Christ? The first people we are introduced to here in Luke chapter 22 are the religious leaders. And no doubt they did have a culpable part to play in Jesus's crucifixion. They are responsible in large measure for his arrest but there are three other players that we need to examine. The second one is Judas Iscariot. Notice verse three. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the 12. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. Now, the name Judas. The name Judas in the first century was a fairly common name. In fact, there are many people in the New Testament who have the name of Judas. Jesus had a brother whose name was Judas. In Acts 5.37, there is a man named Judas of Galilee who was able to a mass of following to come after him. In Acts chapter 9, when Saul is knocked off of his horse and he sees this blinding light and Jesus speaks to him, he ends up going to the man, to a man's home by the name of Judas for three days until Ananias comes to him and heals him and restores his sight. In Acts 15 verse 22, we have two people that go with Paul and Barnabas to Antioch, and their names are Silas and Judas. Several people in the New Testament are named Judas. But what's interesting to me is I've never met a man today named Judas. Have you? 
His name has gone down in infamy. Now, maybe you've met a dog or a pet rat named Judas, but I highly doubt that you've ever met a person named Judas either. Whenever he's introduced in the Gospels, he's introduced as Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. We don't know a whole lot about Judas, but we do know some things. He's called Judas Iscariot. Now, Iscariot is not his last name. Like, my name is Brian Anderson. Anderson's my last name. Well, Iscariot is not Judas's last name. Iscariot means from Kerioth. And Kerioth was a small village in southern Judea. Now, that's interesting because all of the other disciples are from Galilee, the northern region. Judas is the only one from the Judean area. And actually, that served his purposes quite well, because nobody knew anything about him. Nobody knew his parents or his close friends. He had this air of anonymity about him, and that served his treacherous plan later on when he actually betrayed our Lord. Now, Luke 22, verse 3 says that Judas belonged to the number of the twelve. Those are chilling words. Think about that. Judas was an apostle of Christ. He belonged in the inner circle of all the people on the face of the earth. When Jesus walked this earth, Judas was one of those who was most close to Jesus. There were only 12 disciples. Judas was one of those 12. And so he had heard Jesus preach day after day after day. He'd seen miracles. He'd seen Jesus walk on water or calm the storm, or multiply <clears throat> loaves and fish. He'd watched him cast out demons and heal the paralytic and the blind and the lame and the deaf. And he'd watched him actually raise dead people. And not only that, but Jesus had sent out the 12 to preach the gospel and to perform healing and to cast out demons. And no doubt, Judas had actually done those things. What a privilege he had. Think about it. He lived with Jesus day in and day out for three and a half years, and he actually was given authority and power to perform miracles and preach the gospel. I think only he and Adam could have committed such great sins because both he and Adam beheld the face of God every day. Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. Judas walked with Jesus every day, but both of them sinned grievously against their maker. Now, we do have a scripture in John chapter 6, verse 70 and 71. Let's read that together. John 6, verse 70. <clears throat> Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, how does Jesus refer to Judas here? In verse 70, he says, one of you is a devil. What does that mean? I believe it means that Judas was never saved. He was never regenerated. He was a fake. He was a phony. A fraud from the very beginning. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, verse 25, 
The Bible says that Judas went to his own place. When Judas died, he didn't go to God's place. He went to his own place. Now, what does that mean? Well, in John chapter 17, in Jesus's high priestly prayer, in verse 12, this is what he says. Praying to his father, Jesus said, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Now here, Jesus is alluding to Judas as the son of perdition. Now that word perdition, that's not a word that we use very often, is it? I don't know that I've used that word lately. (laughs) And so just to make sure I understood the word, I looked it up. The word perdition means eternal damnation. Eternal damnation. Jesus was saying that Judas was the son of eternal damnation. In Matthew chapter 26, in verse 24, this is what Jesus says. The son of man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Now think about that. He's saying it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Why was it, why would it have been good for Judas to have not been born? Well, simply because he's going to spend eternity being punished in the lake of fire for his sin. It would be much better for him never to have been called into existence than to live eternally in a place of torment and suffering. And my friends, if you die without Christ, the same is true of you. It would have been better if you had never been born than to die without Christ, than to die without his salvation in your life. Now we're told that Judas was simply fulfilling scripture when he betrayed Christ. I'm not going to take the time to read these Old Testament texts, but Psalm 41 verse 9 and Zechariah 11 verses 12 and 13 speak about the fact that a close friend of Jesus would betray him. That brings us to this question. Was Judas just a pawn in God's cosmic chess game? In other words, if everything was determined ahead of time, if scripture was written about Judas being the one to betray Christ, was Judas culpable for his betrayal? Or is he simply an innocent bystander? Did God have to put a gun to Judas's head in order to betray Jesus Christ? Now, the simple fact is that Judas wanted to betray Christ. He wanted to. Now, why would Judas want to betray Christ? Well, let's go over to the book of John, chapter 12, and let's take a look at that. John 12, verse 5 and 6. After Mary took some very costly perfume and anointed Jesus' feet with them, in John 12, verse 5, Judas said this, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. 
Judas was a thief and he would take money out of the money box. He was a greedy man. He was a lover of money. And so betraying Christ simply presented an opportunity to him to, to get some more of the thing that he loved the most, which was money. I also think that he probably was disillusioned. He had figured out by now that Jesus was not going to be a conquering military messiah, that his hopes were dashed, that he would rule and reign with Christ in this new kingdom that he would set up, that that was just a bubble that had popped. And so he was trying to get all the money he could on his way out. And so really, Satan didn't have to force Judas to betray Christ. All he had to do was just wave a little money in front of him. And Judas was all over that like a hound on a T-bone steak. Now, in Luke 22, back to our original text, notice verses four through six. It says, and he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. So here, Judas walks into a meeting of the religious leaders, and he basically says, how much is it worth to you to get your hands on Jesus? How much are you willing to pay me to betray the Son of God to you? Tell me, how much? See, he was a mercenary. Judas lived for money. Verse 5 says they were glad and agreed to give him money. I think that's a bit of an understatement, don't you? They were glad. I think these guys were ecstatic. I mean, think about it. They couldn't believe their good luck. One of the 12 had actually come to them and asked them how much they would pay him to betray Christ to them. I mean, this was just too good to be true. Someone who knew exactly where Jesus was and where he stayed the night and where he was going to be was coming to them and saying, hey, I'm willing to betray him into your hands. Now, it says here they were glad and agreed to give him money. What was Judas's price? Well, if you took a look over at Matthew 26, verse 15, it says that they weighed out for him 30 pieces of of silver. This would have been the amount of money that would take that it would be required to buy a slave in the Old Testament. It was about 120 days wages. That was Judas's price. Now it's a considerable amount of money. Think about that. How much would you money make on your job if you worked for 120 days? Just multiply it out. That's a considerable sum. And Judas was willing to betray the son of God for 120 days wages. What's your price? How much would you require to walk away from Jesus Christ? How much money would someone have to give you in order for you to decide that you are not going to follow Jesus anymore? You're going to stop reading your Bible. You're going to stop praying. You're going to stop going to church. You're going to stop trying to follow him and to obey him. You're just going to let it all go. How much would it take? A million dollars? You say, no, no way. I wouldn't do that for anything less than a hundred million. A hundred million dollars? Nah, I wouldn't even do that for a billion dollars. My friends, if you have any price, even if it means a trillion dollars to be the most wealthy man on the face of the planet, 
even if that was the case, you're no different than Judas. It's just that your price is a little different. So who killed Jesus Christ? The religious leaders? Yes. Judas? Yes. In a sense. Let's take a look at our third player in the drama of redemption, and that is Satan. Satan. Luke 22, verse 3 says, And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot. You see, Satan is not going to entrust this job to any of his understudies, any of his lesser demons. Judas is his. Satan is going to take care of this one himself. In fact, over in John chapter 13, verse 2, Notice what it says, John 13, 2. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. And then verse 27 says, After the morsel, Satan then entered into him, that is Judas. Therefore, Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. You see, first, Satan suggested the thought to Judas hey, why don't you just have him betrayed? And Judas is mulling that over and thinking about it and trying to determine whether he should go through with it or not. And then eventually, verse 27 says, Satan just moved on in. First, he suggests a thought, then he moves in, and Judas is now his. Satan is in complete control of the final events in Judas's life. Now, at this point, let me just say, Christians disagree on something in our text. Some Christians believe that Satan knew that when Jesus died on the cross, it would be his own undoing. They believe that Satan knew that through the cross, Jesus would destroy him. And so they say that Satan didn't want Jesus to go to the cross. And their substantiation for this is that famous conversation that Peter had with Jesus. Peter was telling the disciples that he was going to go up to Jerusalem and die. And Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. And he says, Lord, this is never going to happen to you. And Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your interest, your mind on God's interest, but man's. And they say, see, Jesus called Peter Satan because Peter thought that Jesus should not go to the cross. And that's uh, Satan's agenda. He doesn't want Jesus to go to the cross. I, I really don't understand it that way. I, I think the plain and natural meaning of this record here in Luke 22 and in other gospel accounts is that Satan entered into Judas so that Judas would betray Jesus. See, Jesus has already conquered Satan in the wilderness when Jesus began his ministry. Remember how he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights? And then Satan comes to him and tempts him. Well, Jesus conquered Satan then. And Jesus has continually been conquering Satan throughout his entire earthly ministry. In fact, he has been taking captive those people who were slaves of Satan and delivering them. He's been binding the strong man and plundering his house year after year now. And I think that Satan has just got fed up. He's angry. He's upset. 
and he just wants Jesus out of there. And so Satan wants Jesus dead, just like the religious leaders do. And Judas was the one that he chose to do his dirty work. Just so happens that Judas was also the one in the councils of eternity that was ordained to be the one to betray Christ. Now, there's also, just as a side note, a false teaching going around, usually within charismatic or word of faith circles. And the teaching goes something like this. God and Satan are basically equal and opposing forces. Sometimes we refer to this teaching as dualism. Each of them, God and Satan, possess a certain level of sovereignty. But unless we have enough faith, and unless we bind Satan the right way continually, Satan can come against us and destroy us and our family. They say, if anything bad ever happens in your life, the devil did it. And so, if you get sick, well, the devil did that. If your child gets sick, the devil did it. If your child ends up dying, the devil did that. If the wrong man gets in the White House as the new president, well, the devil did that. Anything, it could be tornadoes, earthquakes, whatever, anything bad that happens in the world, they say the devil is completely responsible for that and God had nothing to do with it. You know, the truth is, Satan is God's devil. Satan can only do what God allows him to do. And we find that in the very same chapter, Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Jesus said to Simon, 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 behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now that's an interesting phrase. Satan has demanded permission. Usually those two words don't go together, demanding and permission. <laughs> but here Satan demanded permission. Why? Because he couldn't touch Simon unless God did give him permission. Did you know that God is completely sovereign over all the details and events of history? Completely. God is sovereign. The devil is not. The devil is like a dog on a leash. He can go only go as far as that leash will allow him to go. And God has a leash on the devil, and he will allow him to go so far, but no further. So we can take comfort. Nothing can happen in Jesus' life without God's permission, and nothing can happen in your life or my life without God's permission. And if God gives permission, that simply means God has a good reason for it. He is working all things together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. So my friends, who killed Jesus? Was it the religious leaders? Well, yes. Was it Judas? Well, yes. Was it Satan? Yes. I'd have to say yes to all of those in a sense. But you know, there is one more player that we need to look at in this divine drama. This player is not actually mentioned in our text, but he's there nonetheless. He's invisible, but he is working powerfully to bring about his own purposes. And of course, I'm referring to God Almighty. Let's look at God's part in this whole drama. Turn with me over to the book of Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. 
Now, the story here is Peter and John have been arrested for preaching Christ, and then they were finally released. When they were released, they went back to the church, and the church had a prayer meeting. And we have a, a record of part of the prayer that was going on. And let's break into that prayer in Acts 4, verse 27. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Now, I want you to think about this with me for just a minute. Think about the things that evil men did to Jesus Christ. And the Bible records all of these things. Evil men hated Jesus. Evil men rejected Jesus. Evil men abandoned Jesus. Evil men pierced Jesus. Evil men betrayed Jesus. Evil men denied Jesus. Evil men condemned Jesus. Evil men spit on Jesus. Evil men scourged Jesus. And evil men killed Jesus. But do you know what? They only did what God had predestined to occur. Last week, there was a man who kept interrupting me in my sermon to, to want to argue with me about the things I was saying. And one of the things I had been saying in my sermon was that I believe that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. That God is complete in complete control of all the events of human history. And so he interrupted me and he, he asked me, so does God ordain rape? And of course, I didn't have time to really do a good in-depth treatment of that subject, a very difficult question to answer. But I said, yes, in a sense, God ordains rape. Well, why would I say that? I would say that because rape is not nearly as evil as the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Can you think of a worst act on the part of men than to take the infinitely holy and worthy Son of God, to take their Creator and nail Him to a cross because of their hatred towards Him? That's got to be the most evil thing that man has ever done in the history of the world. But yet, the Bible tells us that even that sin was predestined to occur. Now, does that mean that God was okay with and was approved and was pleased with the men who are doing these acts of violence and hatred and evil towards Jesus? Absolutely not. God hated those sins that they were committing. God will judge all of those sins that they committed. But he has already decided in the councils of eternity past to let certain things happen within the parameters of his sovereign will because he's going to work all of them together to accomplish his ordained purposes. Let me show you another passage, Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says this, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Do you hear that? It was the Lord who caused our iniquity to fall on Jesus. And when our iniquity fell on Jesus, what happened to Jesus? Look at verse 10. 
But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. The Lord was pleased to crush Jesus Christ. These are difficult words to understand. How could, how could God, who loved his son with an infinite love, how could he be pleased to crush his son? But he was. God was the one who was behind it. God caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The Lord crushed his son. But you know, Jesus was dying on a divine schedule. The Bible tells us that he was sent forth in the fullness of time. He arrived in this world on God's schedule, Galatians chapter 4, but he also left this world on God's schedule. Do you remember how Jesus would continually say, my hour has not yet come? My hour has not yet come. The time has not yet come. But when we finally get to John 17, verse 1, Jesus says, Father, my hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. You see, Jesus could not die until it was God's time for him to die. Jesus's death was on a divine timetable, a schedule. Now, we know that they tried to kill Jesus. King Herod tried to have Jesus killed when he was an infant. He had all the babies two years old and under put to death there in Bethlehem, but Jesus escaped. Later on, when Jesus was preaching in Nazareth, his hometown, they were so incensed and furious at him that they tried to throw him over a cliff, but Jesus simply walked through their midst unhurt. Later on, they tried to stone him again. It wasn't God's time for him to die, and so Jesus just walked right through their midst again. The Bible says that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. His death was planned from the beginning of time. God planned Jesus' death before God even created this world. This world is a stage in which Jesus was to be glorified upon. So no, Jesus did not die on the schedule of the religious leaders. Jesus didn't die on the schedule of the Romans. Jesus didn't die on Judas's schedule or Satan's schedule. Jesus died on God's schedule. In fact, the book of Luke chapter 22, verse 53 says, here's the words of Jesus. While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. You see, Jesus' hour had finally come. And so he refers to it here as this hour and the power of darkness, they're yours. Because it's my hour is also the devil's hour. It's also the religious leader's hour. It's also Satan's hour. It's also Judas's hour. You see, God set the hour and the devil fit into it. Judas fit into it. The religious leaders fit into it. So who killed Jesus Christ? Was it the religious leaders? Was it Judas? Was it Satan? Yes, yes, and yes. But ultimately, the one who killed Jesus was God himself. God killed Jesus. Now, you may be thinking, Brian, okay, I get that, but 
why are you laboring on that point? Why is it important that God was the one who ultimately was responsible for the death of his son? It's important because if God had nothing to do with the death of Jesus, then you and I and every person in this world will perish in their sins. Unless God was doing it, there is no gospel. You see, if you break God's activity with the cross, you lose the gospel. There is no gospel left. If Jesus just simply died accidentally or by fate or by chance, or there was no divine purpose in that death, there is no good news of salvation to perishing sinners. Think about what John says over in 1 John 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, let me paraphrase that for you. The important thing is not that we loved God. The important thing is that God loved us. And he evidenced his love for us by sending his son into the world to be the wrath-averting sacrifice who would bear God's white-hot fury against us for our sins and punish and judge his son and make his son satisfy the divine justice and satisfy God's broken law so that guilty sinners could be set free. There's the gospel. It's important that God killed Jesus because if that's the case, then God was behind it all. And there is a plan of redemption and salvation and the mind and heart of God that came to fruition in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, my friends, we should worship God as the great sovereign saving Lord of history. He loved us from all eternity. He sent his son into this black world to rescue us. My friends, who killed Jesus Christ? God killed Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would seal the truth that our God is a great saving sovereign king. Seal that truth to our hearts. Let us never let that go. Let us worship you as a great lover of our souls and the one who is in complete control over all of the details even the sinful details of Jesus' death. We love you and give you glory in his holy name. Amen.